Hello and welcome to the Bucket Lister podcast. Join your host, Keith Crockford, along with special guests who have traveled the world, here to share stories of their adventures and plenty of inspo to add to your bucket list. Now, let's get into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Bucket Lister podcast. I am your host, Keith Crockford, and today I am back chatting with Jake. Hello, Jake. How are you doing, Keith? Very well, thank you. All recovered from your recent trip to the sunshine? Yeah, do you know what? I was exhausted when I got back, actually. I was really, really tired. So I have fully recovered now. I've tackled the packing, uh, the unpacking, should I say. So that was yesterday's job. Um, I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to do it for the first day or two. I don't know what you're like. Are you one of those people that does the unpacking straight away or do you leave it? Yeah, so I may come straight in. Um, obviously, everyone, if you've watched any of my videos, knows that I have my dry bag full of dirty washing. Like, so that just, and, you know, my wife will not touch my kit bags when I get back from a trip. Um, so they are my responsibility. I mean, to be honest, like I go on my first trip um, of 2023 on Monday. I'm heading off to Iceland and I haven't been on a trip since the end of no or the beginning of november so i haven't had a trip now for quite a while and generally i haven't needed to unpack because i only need to wash my clothes and then put them back in the bag again to go um so i generally have i you know i, I generally have i've got my my dive bag upstairs with my dive kit in it i've got a walking bag which keeps all my normal walking stuff in then i've got kind of like my best of bag for like when we do those style trips. So I have like three duffel bags with what I need in each one, then just put some clothes in. But they've, they've made their way up to the attic because they haven't been used for so long. So I'm going to need to go down in this weekend and sort my kit out ready because I've got a couple of trips in March that I'm looking forward to. So yeah, I am a get home, get it sorted. Um, but then, you know, there are a couple of times. I mean, like, I think I've done it two or three times where I haven't actually come home. Like I've I've literally landed in an airport and driven to another airport to fly out the next day. So I've basically had two, and they're the worst ones because you end up with the dirty washing bag staying in the the bag for like an extra week or two weeks. Which you know I can understand why my wife doesn't want to um open that one up when it, I get home. It depends. Yeah, it depends on the trip. Like I've I've had a, starting to get a couple of those where I might have like twenty four hours in between, not not quite enough time, but. That's why I've started sussing out which countries have got really good laundry access. Like some of the hotels do the laundry. Some of the, um, if you go out to Nepal, it's pretty it's pretty cost effective to get that done there. And um, Thailand was the same. So yeah, those are all yeah, it's, done, it's, it's paid for. Like I don't like the ones where they charge you by the garment, but when they charge no, you by the, the weight, the yeah, kilo. I mean, obviously, you're a lot bigger than me. Your clothes are a lot bigger, so it costs you a bit more because they're heavier. But, like, you know, it's not too bad. Well, I'm I mean, starting to think that's why on the packing videos it all seems so easy to you. The group that I had on Tipkale on this trip have decided that that table you pack on must have a, a hole in it. Like, <laughs> all the bags go in, and it just doesn't seem to fill up. Whereas my packing video that I did before I went out on this trip, we decided it was a lot more realistic because I'm sort of kneeling on it to get it zipped up. But, again, big jacket, that's... Uh, that's my problem. <laughs> yeah, big jacket, big shoulders. But it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because, you know, 
I always take a bigger bag than you need. I.e., mm. like I could probably squeeze it in a medium-sized bag, but I'll take a large, or I could squeeze it into a large, but I'll take an extra large to give me that extra room. Um, but I some people like I would love I would love at the end of the trip at some point for everyone to bring their bags down and show me what they haven't used. Mm. Because I think some people just so overpack for a trip that it just gets ridiculous in, in what they take. Um, I suppose if you have the luxury of having, like, I've got multiple duffel bags, like a medium, a, a large, a small, like, it would almost be pack everything into a medium and then without adding anything else, take it out and put it into the large because I, I like having the rummage room. And what I always yeah. find, no matter how hard I try, and even though you'll be in a hotel in Morocco or, or, or Kathmandu, it never packs as neatly as when I'm at home. I don't understand what happens. I always always get to the point, I was having this conversation with the people on this trip, was my bag was coming in at like, you know, whatever it was for the airport, like 17 kilos or something. And I'd definitely taken a few things I didn't need, but it was coming like that. And then when I got to, when I got to the airport, on the way back, it was like 18 kilos, but I'd eaten some of the snacks. And I hadn't added anything. So I was like, how is it? How could it possibly uh, Dirt be? and sweat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mud. Mud content. Anyway, yes. so we are going to talk about your um, most recent trip on this podcast. And Jake has just returned from Mount Tukau. And we have done several podcasts already on Mount Tukau. And I will add those podcasts into the show notes so you can find them easily from, I think we're on, I think it's like episode 84 of the podcast now. Like, um, we're, we're heading towards the 100. And Last week, we had our, our 50,000th download of the podcast, and I got sent a certificate via email to say that 50,000 people, well, not 50,000 people, because it could be three people that have listened to them a lot of times, but the podcast say, has had... Mom and your dad, I think it seems to be, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> it has had 50,000 downloads now, which is amazing. Um, when I looked the other day, we were back up as number one in the in the chart um, for the UK for our very small niche, um, which is quite nice. And there, and and also as well, like there are some good big podcasts underneath us, like you know the NHS Couch to Five K podcast, which I would assume would get listened to quite a bit because quite a lot of people jump on the old Couch to Five K and. There's, you know, there's other podcasts there below us that I think, blimey, we're doing all right to be a, above some of these podcasts. So, but we are going to be talking today about Mount Tukau. And in um, particular, we're going to be talking about our winter Mount Tukau trek, um, which varies slightly from our standard Tukau trek. Obviously, in the first instance, it's in winter. Um, and then it is a, a slightly different itinerary as well. Our normal Mount Tukau trip is an eight-day trip, whereas this trip becomes a nine-day trip. Um, you know, we always say a perfect time for Mount, to go to Mount Tukau is kind of like May through to kind of early or April, end of April through to um, early June, or then kind of end of September through to sort of end of October, beginning of November is like when we say is great for a sort of what we would class is a summer trek to Mount Tukau in terms of, you know, you might have a little bit of snow in the shoulder season um, right at the start and then right at the end. But generally you will have good conditions throughout. But obviously there are some people 
that when you want to go to a mountain, you want to have snow, you want to be wearing crampons. Um, and that's why we created our winter uh, cow trek. Um, and Jake's just come back off it, um, had 12 clients on it, 11 managed to get to the summit. So well done on getting all those up there. So we're going to just have a chat with Jake now and just talk about that trip. What makes it different from our standard eight day trip and just get some feedback on it from Jake. So Jake, take it away. How was the trip? Oh, first of all, it was an amazing trip. Uh, probably my most exciting trip to date is what I would say, but we'll, we'll get into that later. It was, it was a really, really good trip. Um, I've done Mount Tibcal plenty of times now. It is one of the more popular trips that we offer because I think it's so close. It's a really nice length of time with, with eight days. Um, as we say, biggest culture shock for the least amount of air miles going into Marrakesh. Marrakesh is great. Um, the way that it varies slightly, we spoke a lot about the summer trip, but the winter one, so slightly harder with winter conditions. There's a few added elements that you need to take into consideration with climbing in the winter. But really, it all starts off with we go a slightly different route uh, than on our summer trip. So um, we'll fly into Marrakesh on, on day one. And then rather than having the next day as a free day in Marrakesh to go and do the tour and stuff, with the winter trip, you actually get started straight away. So you land on the first day. And the following day, we, we head off into the mountains. Now, where we would normally stop and go over the pass to the right-hand side on our summer trip, we actually go over the pass onto the left. So it's a slightly different We have done the summer mountain cow. Don't worry that you're going to be repeating the same route if you came back and did the winter, because it is a slightly different route. So we stay in um, Tizi Ujdeh, which is the highest village in africa is what i've been told uh so that's quite a cool experience it's a lovely little local mountain um village that you, you hike up to and that's where we spend the first night and then on day two of the trekking day three of the trip we then go up and over another pass where we descend into imlil now imlil for everybody that knows about mount tibcal in morocco imlil is quite a popular mountain town where loads of groups will start their mount tibcal adventure but the reason that I like that we do two days prior to that is you've already warmed up the legs. You know, day one for a lot of people is the hardest day because your legs have been on a plane and on a bus for the last couple of days. You know, it's nice to be able to stretch your legs and warm up. And the other thing is we've already acclimatized a little bit by going up and over those passes. Nothing particularly high, nothing crazy, sort of 2,400, 2,500 meters. But it gives you a chance to warm up your legs, test out the kit and acclimatize. So when you come down to Imlil, if there's anything that you realise that you'd forgotten or you'd rather have, then you can go and buy those things in Imlil because there's lots of shops around, lots of places to rent hiking kit or go and purchase things um, and also stock up on all of those important snacks that you'll need for the, for the climb. But that's where it then gets a little bit busier on the trail because we go up to the main refuge on the, on the, on the next day. So we'll leave Imlil in the morning, hike up to the refuge and... Um, now, the difference between the summer and the winter trip is that when we're doing that main hike up on the, on the summer, baking hot, really, you know, taking on a lot of water, um, people can find that a little bit of a struggle. Less hot in the winter, and also as you get into the refuge, that's when you start seeing all the snow. So it does get quite exciting. Well, obviously, when we went, and they had a snow dump about a week before, so we had pretty good levels of snow um, as, as we were coming in. 
We then got into the refuge. That was that was that was slight a worry of us, wasn't it? Because it, it Morocco was. Morocco hadn't had very much, or the Atlas hadn't had very much snow um, coming up to it. No snow. Uh, that you know, our local team were quite concerned for a number of reasons. You know, one, obviously, no snow means that it's not really a winter trip, um, but also the fact of like there was just no rain in the valleys below so all the farmers were really hoping for rain you were hoping for rain and snow because you've got your white water rafting trip coming up so you were wanting the rivers to be flowing nicely which i can tell you they are um you know it was yeah it was a concern but definitely a relief when we when we got there and that's actually something i should have said about imlil is when we get to imlil that's where you're able to rent a lot of the equipment that you might need for the winter climb so Another difference between summer and winter is you do need a few extra bits of equipment. Nothing crazy, but you'll need crampons, you'll need a helmet, and you'll need potentially an ice axe, depending on conditions. But all of those things, if you haven't got them, don't worry, because you can rent them from us and and our local team when you're in Imlil. And actually, I I tend to prefer renting the crampons because it can be really rocky on Tupcow, and I don't damage my nice ones. <laughs> so I'd rather I'd rather scratch up a rental pair um, than than you know if you've got a really nice pair. But stocking up on those bits of equipment and then we and we head out. So that's an added added element in the afternoon. Then because we had loads of good snow, that's when I got to take everybody out onto the slopes nearby the mountain and we did some of our winter skills training. So for those people who have never used crampons before, we spoke about how to put them on and we did a little bit of training in walking uphill, downhill, across. Um, with crampons we then spoke about using an ice axe so ways to utilize that uh, not have it be a burden and then we also did some ice axe arrests so we got everybody sliding down the snowy slopes and then rolling over and stopping themselves by digging in the ice axe so if you're thinking at some point in the future that you might want to branch out and do some of the bigger mountains Mount Tukal in the winter is a perfect starting point because you can learn all of those skills for the first time and you get to summit something, which is quite nice. Yeah, amazing. So um, the difference as well then between um, the summer trip and the winter trip is on our summer trip, we only spend one night up at Mount uh, the Refuge. Um, but on our winter trip, we spend more time at the Refuge, don't we? Yeah, so we spend a bit more time. Um, the reason mainly being is because of weather contingency. The winter can be a lot more unpredictable with with weather. And the last thing we want is to keep our margins really small, Um, because if we've only got one day where we're planning on summiting and then our itinerary is that we come back down, if you get a bad weather window, then that's thrown our entire trip. So we do leave a lot more time at the refuge, but that's not necessarily to say that we'll need to use all of it. So what happened on this trip, um, we had three days scheduled at the refuge, but we had glorious sunshine and Actually, a little bit of a heat wave in Morocco while we're out there, which was really bizarre. I packed all my big winter coats, expecting it to be, well, similar to the conditions that you had a few years ago. I was telling people about big snowstorms and quite poor weather. And that's always what you have to plan for. But when we got there, there was um, there was definitely a heat wave in Morocco and it's the, the best weather we've seen. So we decided, myself and the local team, that we would actually, after doing our winter skills training, that we would head for the summit the following morning. Um, wind speeds were going to be lower, weather was going to be nice, and everybody was still quite fresh. So we then told the group, and the following morning, um, we were up about 3.30, 4 o'clock to, to have breakfast, uh, and then we left shortly shortly after that and began, began climbing. Um, 
I always think it's better starting in the dark. You do get groups that start during the day. Not my favourite for two reasons. I really like starting in the dark. One, because it's a little bit cooler. Um, and during the day, with that sun bouncing off the snow, like reflecting off the snow, it can get really, really warm and you get people getting pretty, pretty bad sunburn. The other thing is that you can't see the top when you start at, at, at night and you can't really see how steep it is. And I think psychologically that makes such a big difference um, when you're when you're starting out and it's dark, because when you get back down and you see what you've just climbed up, everybody goes, I cannot believe it was that steep. And when you start coming down, people go, I can't believe we came up this. So, yeah, I quite like the fact that we start early in the morning. Um, it does then mean that we get to the top of the pass for sunrise. You get to see this amazing sunrise over the over the Sahara Desert and over the Atlas Mountains. And then we continue on um, about another 40, 45 minutes up to the summit from there. So that's where everybody um, all regrouped. It was quite windy when we did get there, but lower wind speeds than it was going to be for the rest of the days. So we stayed up there for about 15 minutes. Um, and then I took everybody back down from, from there. And then the nice thing about the winter as well, we didn't go straight back down like you would in the summer because the snow does make it a harder climb. So we then had the rest of the afternoon and evening to rest and recover. Yeah, and then if uh, if people want to do something else, then the following day they can do, can't they? So we'd originally planned that on the first day, that was going to be our acclimatization run, um, where we would go up to uh, one of the one of the neighbouring passes for a couple of hours and just get used to those those crampons and, and all that stuff. Um, obviously, with the weather being what it was and the group being quite capable, we decided not to do the acclimatization run first because it wasn't really needed um, and they all showed that they were perfectly uh, capable um, and competent using the the equipment that we'd given them so we just decided to go for the summit straight away but the following morning is then when people if they wanted to could have gone up to one of the neighboring passes um, and and sort of experienced another element of of the mountains up there and just kind of had fun really yeah perfect um, and obviously, you said at the start of this podcast that it was one of your most exciting trips. Um, and I know we've had several conversations about this on the on the day and, and, and when it happened. And, you know, it's one reason why I think having a UK leader on the trip is a good thing. Um, but obviously, there was an accident on Mount mm. Tupacow. Um, at the same time that you were on it, not with our group, um, with with another group, with another group, um, and obviously you got um, not dragged into the situation, but you were there, and you know, and I always say, like you know, our local guides are amazing. Whether you go to Nepal, Tanzania, Morocco, like our local teams, like their local knowledge and everything is brilliant, but. Like one thing that I do always say is that their training in terms of their medical training and their ability to to deal with uh, emergency situations, I don't think is, you know, our qualifications and skills in the UK are top of the top in terms of when you go around the world and in Europe. But when you go to Nepal, Tanzania, you know, Morocco, they're not you know, their, their level of training is not what we've had to go through. Um, and I think what you experienced on that day kind of really does show that, doesn't it? Do you want to just talk about what happened? Yeah, so we'd, we'd come down um, off a successful Tupacow Summit um, with, the, with the group. And then we'd had the, 
we'd had the rest of the day to rest and relax basically and, and for everybody to let it sink in what they what they just achieved um most people went to bed very sensible um i you know actually decided that i wasn't going to sleep then because i was like no i don't feel too bad and i don't want to not sleep tonight so myself and um one of our local guys were, were going through the plan for the next couple of days and getting all of the all of the stuff sorted out um gets to uh, about dinner time called everyone down they were bringing out the food um i was maybe like two bites into dinner and there was a bit of a commotion outside and i've been up there enough over the last few years and i think a lot of the guides will understand this as you you just get a feeling when something's off like when you spend a lot of time in a country you understand what it's like and and, and yeah the vibe was definitely off and people were rushing around which they don't normally do in the way that they did um so i spoke to our local guy and i said you know what's um what's going on and uh, he said oh there's been reports of a, of a climber that's that's fallen um so i said okay um have they are they okay do they need a hand like what's going on um and we went outside and we had a look and we spoke to a couple of other guys and we could see where he'd fallen from. Now, Tubkow is, I would say, a brilliant entry-level mountain if you want to get into mountaineering. I would not say that it's an objectively dangerous mountain. However, mountaineering in any capacity holds a certain amount of risk. And I think what happened is this guy, as he was tired, was coming back down and, and had just tripped and, and, and slipped, basically. And, and I don't think from conversation that i had with other teams who were up there i don't think he'd stuck to the path either um his local guide had had shot further ahead um and he was coming down a section on it on his own which is not something we would ever do that's you know we've always been really hot on on staying with the group there's a reason that we do that um but anyway i think he'd strayed off the path and i think he'd um slipped so what we then did or what i then did was i asked um a few people around i could see people running to him and my first question was, well, is there anybody here that has any medical kits? Are they going to run him any supplies? Is there a doctor? Is there a medic? Is there anything like that? And when I found out that the answer, you know, basically was no, um, we, m- myself and the local team that, that we used didn't really think. We just said, oh, well, we'll go and see what we can do to help. So I went back into the dining room and I, I spoke to my guys that were all enjoying their dinner. And I said, look, if anybody's got medical kits, I'm just going to take a full bag. Somebody's fallen. Not sure, you know, what's happened, but we're just going to go and see if we can do anything to help. So I then ran over and, and we got there just in time as they were um, lifting him on a on a broken stretcher, as it happens, that was kept at the refuge. Um, so I grabbed one of the sides of the stretcher and um, we carried him into uh, the lower down refuge there's actually two refuges um, when you get there there's we stand the slightly higher up one um, but there's a lower down one so we carried him into there we got him on the floor um and yeah i there was nobody else really so i just started working on him as best as i could um patching him up as best as i could um yeah we, we didn't really hesitate it was one of those where if you're capable of doing so. I think, you know, you would do the same. I think everybody that we use at the bucket list company has kind of got that in them. Like, you know, even though it's not one of our group, like we've got very high standards and, and we want to help people. And yeah, I just didn't really think so. Um, it was, I'm very glad it didn't happen to one of my groups. I think it does give weight to why we do things the way we do things, because it's all it all seems very easy until something goes wrong 
you know, and it can seem like a really simple climb and maybe not one that needs an ice axe or a helmet. Like there's lots of groups that go up and they don't have helmets, but. And and let's just say like this, you know, this chap had major trauma to his head um, and he wasn't, and he wasn't wearing a helmet, was he? Um, Yeah. And and interestingly as well, like I, I had received, you know, I don't want to blow your trumpet, you know, and, you know, (laughs) put smoke up your ass, but um, you know, I did receive an email um, a couple of days ago from somebody that was out on Mount Tupcow at the same time. They weren't with us. They were from the UK. They were with another um, UK provider. Um, and they were just complimenting you on on how you dealt with the situation. Um, but I think, you know, the key thing to that was, was that, you know, they they were then surprised that they weren't made to put a helmet on or a helmet wasn't suggested to them either. And, you know, for me, if I see snow, you know, and coming back down from, you know, coming back down from Tupcow, you are tired. You've been walking a while, Um, even in summer conditions, like, you know, people go over, it's quite scree, you know, you get some knocks and bumps on the way back down, but you know, most accidents on a mountain happen on the way back down, not on the way back up. Um, you know, we did a, I did a video on this about why, why do you climb, why do you start Kilimanjaro in the dark? And it's, you know, the reason we do that predominantly is so you come back down in the daylight. Like, you know, I would hate to have to come back down Kilimanjaro or Mount Tupcow in the dark. Like, it's hard enough to find the path. Never mind if it's dark as well and you're doing it by head torch. At least when you when it's light, you can kind of look ahead and see which direction you've kind of got to aim for. Like at night, you won't be able to do that. Um, and, you know, they, was, they were quite surprised, weren't they? That they, they weren't advised by the company that they were with to, to put a helmet on. Yeah, I was really surprised that there were so many groups that had helmets. And I was also surprised that this guy was coming down at the time he, he was. You know, 7 o'clock, like it's not, it's not far past you know, when it's going to be dark. Um, yeah, but he was a slightly older guy. Again, most accidents happen on the way back down. I think he was very, very tired. Um, but what it does mean is it really reinforces the way that we do things. And I never want to be, you know, sitting there and going, oh, well, this is the way we do things because one time it went wrong. And that's why we do it. You know, we've always made sure that our groups are, are you know, very cautious and, and have the right protection and all that sort of stuff. And that's just what we've done from the beginning. But when another group, when it goes wrong, I'm kind of okay with, you know, that being the position of going, well, that would never happen to our group because you're super well looked after. But that is why, you know, we, we make sure that you wear helmets on Tupcal and ice axes are a bit overkill. Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. They are a bit overkill, but there are some really steep sections on Tupcal where if you did slip, and that's why we teach people how to do an ice axe arrest, because it's that what if. And there are sections where it's useful to be able to use an ice axe to get up and stuff. But I'd rather I'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Yeah. And I think, you know, on you know, you didn't have a it wasn't I mean, I've been on Toop Cow and it's been powder and mm. you know, the snow's been really thick in places and you have needed to have um an ice axe. So like you say, you know we're going up it for the first time on that day. Um, you, you never know what it's going to be like. 
um, and actually you're always better to be prepared uh, than not be prepared. And, and, you know, it's accidents do happen. Like it's part and parcel of adventure travel. Like it's Mm. part and parcel of mountaineering. It's part and parcel of climbing. Like, you know, we can do everything we can to prevent things from happening, but you know, you've only got a, you know, not, you know, you're tired, you've got crampons on, you don't lift your foot up high enough and you catch a point on a rock and then go over. Like it's, it's easily done. Um, And like, you know, when we were discussing it on the phone, when you were over there, like you said, if he had had a helmet on, like his injuries wouldn't have been as severe. for, For him, he just had huge trauma wounds to the to the head basically um and if he had been wearing a helmet it would have been i think it would have been a very very different story in terms of the severity of his injuries um you know and and, and morocco's not and morocco's not like nepal for example is it like you can't call a helicopter and then a helicopter's gonna land and take him off like we've he's got to be trekked out of that situation that's what i was going to say is that actually what i think you know what people need to understand about the refuge in, in in morocco is that it is different to nepal you can't just call a helicopter there are loads of restrictions in place um the best course of evacuation is being carried out by a you know by a stretcher um or if it's you know slightly less serious then on the back of a donkey or whatever but though that is the position that you're in it's the same for everybody so you know you just have to be super careful but what was really nice about that situation there's i mean there isn't it's not a nice situation but something that was really commendable was um you know I, I i would always want to be involved in helping out because you know at the bucket list company we go through regular medical training we're quite on it with the way that we train our our, our team so you know i think that everybody anybody who went up would have done the same thing as me with our company because we've got the training so if we can help then we would our local team were brilliant in getting involved um, with myself and actually controlled the, um, whilst I was working on the guy, our local team were making arrangements for him to get rescued by arranging an ambulance and a team to come up and stretcher him out. You know, uh, the guy um, who we had as like our main head guide was being a translator between me and this Moroccan guy who had fallen. So they they just got stuck in and it was really noticeable that it was our team that really took control and, and, and took care of the situation. And I think the other thing that about those situations on a mountain, um, as much as I felt really happy with our team and, and what we were doing, climbers are very good at helping each other out. And there was a moment where I was, I was treating this guy as best I could. And somebody comes in and he goes, um, just a, just a regular climber. And he goes, um, you know, are you doing okay? Um, would you like a hand? I'm a paramedic. I went, absolutely. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> so he comes and he starts helping. And then he goes, would you like a doctor? I said, well, yeah, obviously that'd be amazing. And he goes, oh, great. There's one upstairs. So, <laughs> so he disappears upstairs, comes down with this other guy and this other guy, you know, oh, hi, nice to meet you. Um, how can we help? Um, and I think, like I said, I don't want to, I'm not going to take full credit for everything. I was the first one there and we did what we could. And my, yeah, the local guys were excellent at doing a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. But what was really nice is that there was a community of climbers up there that just rushed in to help where, where needed. And there was another girl there who we got halfway and she went, you all seem to have it really under control, but would anyone like a hot drink? 
<laughs> she, she goes and gets coffee. So, yeah, the the, the community and, uh, yeah, one of those guys wrote in, but um, if they do end up listening to it, then I'll just say thanks very much for being there because it made a huge, huge difference. Um, but I feel really confident with our team, with the way that we reacted um, and just the fact that we could bring a skill set. It wasn't if we, if we weren't needed, we wouldn't have done it, but we go through a lot of training and that's why I always feel confident with our groups when we're out there because if it does go wrong and it rarely does, but I'm really confident in our guys taking care of it. Yeah. I love it when, you know, like Jane, who I did a podcast with um, a while ago, one of our clients, I love having Jane on a trip because, you know, she's a heart, she was a heart paramedic. Um, (laughs) So having her on the trip is amazing. Like we've had to sort a few things out before. And like you say, it just, I mean, you know, it was one reason why I trained as a trainer um mm. because they i wanted to make sure that our guys do have um a good level of understanding um and it means that we can always stay updated and you know and i know you said like you know actually we need to do something with our local teams um yeah. and um, we're just looking at the minute of me flying out to morocco to do some training and do some first aid training with not just our guides, but actually local guides in the area as well. And, you know, actually for us to try and give something back and say, well, you know, and and also, like you say, we're looking at, you know, getting some more kit up at the refuge so Mm -hmm. they can make these rescues a whole lot easier. And I just think it's something we can give back that is... Well, after after an incident happens like this, it's something you and I have always been very hot on, but we'll do a full debrief and we'll basically go through. And, you know, even though I think that we dealt with that situation the best way we possibly could have. We always learn from it. And by going through a debrief, we went, okay, well, the stretcher that they provided at the refuge that happened to be the one that we had access to was was broken. And there was a lot of time spent trying to fix that before we got one that was appropriate brought up. But that came from Imlo, so it took a little while. Um, those are the things that we'll then process and go, okay, how can we improve for next time? So although our team is pretty on it, yeah, like I said, we're going to look at you going out, not training just our team, but looking at other guides in the areas. Um, and after an incident, really going in and making sure we stay on top of that and discussing what happened in that incident. But um, I just want to go back quickly. There was a podcast that we did. I don't want to know how many episodes ago now. <laughs> it must have been season one where we spoke to um, Richard Woods. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. And he was on um, mine and Gareth's um, Everest Base Camp and Island Peak Trip. And he did a podcast, which was really good, about when things go wrong. Um, yeah. And what was really nice was was his first hand account of, of things being less than ideal and how comfortable and safe that he felt with the processes that we have in place. Um, you know, and, and, and that's something that I hope everybody on our trips feels comfortable with. The guys that we had, even though it wasn't related to them you know, we're saying that actually having seen me and the local guys spring into action, if you like, but the processes that we have set in place that we started following, they went, oh, if something had happened, there's a procedure and we actually feel much more comfortable now on all of your trips because not many people get to see that side, which is what we really try hard to never make yeah, sure. We don't, we, don't want to, we don't want to see that side. <laughs> we no, don't exactly. want to see that side. But if you, if you get a glimpse into it through somebody else, um, I think it does reaffirm what we do yeah and i think you know it obviously we run our we run our trips in two different styles don't we like not every trip has one of us on it but i think it just shows why 
our bucket list of plus trips where there is one of us on the trip um, are so well booked up and, you know, we still sell more of those than our standard bucket list of trip because, you know, I think, you know, like for some destinations you don't need it. I mean, I remember like I was in Gozo last, last year, maybe the year before. Um, and I, I was diving at the blue hole and, you know, we, uh, one of the chaps, not again, not in our group, you know, had a Benz. He came up and he'd had a Benz. And, you know, there was a lot of people there that day. But the interesting thing is, is, and, you know, the email that came in about you was that you jumped in and you took control of the situation. And exactly the same thing happened when I was in, in Gozo, was there was a lot of people trying to be involved, but nobody actually stepped in and went, I'm going to take control of this situation, which is then when I went, right, we're not getting anywhere here. Someone, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't my client. It wasn't one of ours, but somebody had to step in and say, this is what we are doing because mm. otherwise, you know, nothing would, or obviously stuff would still happen, but it would have taken a lot longer because they were sort of having a, an argument about, you know, everyone had their own ideas of what to do. And actually it was like, let's just get on and do something because, you know, this is this is not getting any better. I think the nice thing about um, obviously those those guys really kind words was that he acknowledged that there was a different um, attitude around the situation that we well you teach and obviously you know we live and breathe, but you come into it with a very calm headspace and I think lots of people panic and they try and do something, but you know actually just slowing things down a little bit. Um, utilizing everybody you have around you. I think that's something that's really important. Like the first thing that I did was get everybody to step back. And it was all way too crowded and it creates a very panicky atmosphere. I think that by giving small, small changes of getting everybody to step back and everyone to almost take a deep breath just changes the atmosphere and everyone feels less panicky. Um, as soon as there were some guys that came in that were far more qualified than me, you know, that was, that was brilliant because they got to come in and pick up, you know, sort of on where I was. Um, and I could, again, in terms of managing the scene, it was a case of going, okay, well, you're way more experienced with, you know, traumatic brain injury, so you're gonna you're gonna deal with that. But now I'm gonna go and take care of how long is the rescue gonna be? How can we arrange this? What do we need to do here? Let's get a translator on this. Um, so, yeah, I think sometimes, and it's just something that we've trained in, so I felt really comfortable with the processes that I was about to deliver, but just taking some form of charge with direction um, is, is, is quite nice. But yeah, our local team are amazing. But as a UK guide, you go through a lot of different training and you go through and it's very expensive, which is why, <laughs> you know, like UK guides get paid a bit more because of the level of training. But as fantastic as our local team are, yeah, if you wanted a slightly different level of security, and you're happy to to go for that option then, then well i just they don't they don't have the access to it do they that's that's the issue in in you know what we discussed was actually well let's give them the access to it like yeah. i've got to fly out to morocco for a few days and i'll deliver a couple of courses like it's not you know i just need to we just need to be able to get everyone's diaries together to be able to do it but you know i'm i'm completely happy to to fly out and, and, and go to Imlil and, and run a couple of courses to to kind of just bring their knowledge and, and their understanding up to mm. and you know again 
the, the training that we've been through, I'm not going to be able to, you know, get them up to that level, you know, but to get them up to a level that we feel is actually they could have dealt with that situation better than they did. Like that's the position we want to get. And to. our guys, I mean, yeah, I know we're going to run some more training. We're going to get them up to a higher level and we're always looking to improve. But God, if you, if you'd been there, you would have seen how different our guides were to every other person at that refuge from local guiding companies. They were calm. They, you know, they knew what to do. They worked, they've worked with me for years. They've worked with you for years. So we've got a bit of an unspoken um, level of communication, but yeah, it was a different caliber. And you had other local guiding teams looking up to our guys and going, what should we do? So that was really nice to see. And obviously we've moved on to a bit of a tangent there because we were talking about our winter mountain tube cow trip and how great it was. And we've kind of finished it on that. But, you know, I think the reason we decided to talk about that was just to highlight how, you know, how well looked after you are on one of our trips. Um, and that's the point we wanted to make by just discussing that incident. Um, and I think, you know, the key thing for that is just simple things like, you know, you you will wear a helmet. Like just mm-hmm. something as simple as that. That And, you know, to, to hear that there are other UK companies that are sending groups out there again. You know, if they had a UK leader with them, maybe they would be saying, you know, if you're going to do this, you're going to be wearing a helmet. But they don't. Um, and it's it's that process that we go through that I think you know just tries to eliminate. And you can't take all of the risk out of being in the outdoors because that would make the outdoors a boring place to be if you eliminated every risk. But yeah. what you know the risks you can take out are are what we're doing to try and make it as safe as we possibly can make it. Um, and. Yeah, I think, you know, Mount Tupcow is an amazing mountain, whether you want to do it in su- summer, whether you want to take it as your first, you know, 4,000 metre peak, um, that's achievable. You know, obviously a lot of people, when they think about a 4,000 metre peak, you know, they think about Mont Blanc. Um, but obviously with weather conditions as they've been over the last few years on Mont Blanc, you know, it's very hard to, you know, I know so many people who've tried to go out and climb a Mont Blanc trip, but they haven't been able to do it that season because the weather's been bad, the ice hasn't been good. Like with a Toop Cow trek, you know, as long as you give yourself a, a good contingency in winter at the refuge, you should be able to make it up to the top. Um, and then you would get, you know, be able to tick off that first 4,000 metre peak that you're looking to do. So um, if Toop Cow is on your um, bucket list or a 4,000 metre mountain is on your bucket list, then Toop Cow is definitely a um, a good one for you to go and look at. Jake, have you got anything else to add? Um, not too much, really. I would say, if you, yeah, if you are looking at getting into the mountains and starting your journey into high altitudes, then Toop Cow is a great place to start. Um, that's kind of the, the journey that I did. I started with to Cal, I think that's a great place to start. If you are looking at it with the uh, you know, mindset of I want to get more into mountaineering, then the winter one is a perfect trip because you get to learn those skills and you don't need to have those skills before you get there. Um, I also think that Morocco and the Atlas Mountains is more beautiful in the in, in, in the winter. Um, but Tupcal, and I, I say this about a lot of trips, like, oh, this is my favourite for this reason, this is my favourite for this reason. But genuinely, Tupcal might might be my favorite i think it's just such a great trip you get to achieve 
really cool goal of standing on the top of something. The people are lovely. The culture is incredible. And it's only eight days. And I think, and I think as well, like it's a pretty iconic photo on top of Mount Tukau, isn't it? Like that, that pyramid on the top is, is quite cool to go in, have that, you know, there's so many other mountains you get to the top of and there's nothing there. Um, But you actually feel like when you get to the top of Mount Tukau, there's that, you know, there's that statue almost to stand beside and have your picture taken with. Absolutely. Right, Jake. Well, I think we've covered everything off your trip. Um, obviously, you know, you had a few people doing the hot air balloon ride add-on as well. Um, you know, you had um, there's a few people that went out to Essaera and, you know, they did their bit in the mountains, but they bolted on our four-day Essaera trip and went and had a bit of chill-out time down at the coast. Um, and that, I think, turns it into a lovely two-week trip then if you add the Essaera bit on. Um, and I and I've seen um, some of Andy who was on who did the SOR out. I've seen some of his pictures, and he looked like he chilled out um, quite nicely down in SOR with a, a well deserved beer after that. He definitely did well. He's um, he's Instagram famous now, so that's it. He's uh, he's got to be keeping it up with the with the pictures and stuff. He had, he had an amazing time, and I think he took quite a lot of satisfaction in finishing off his. Uh, trekking trip with a couple of days relaxing by the beach at an amazing hotel um, and having a few beers in the sun while everyone back well, while everybody else landed in English rain. <laughs> no, I know. Quite it's actually fun. quite nice today. Like I, I, I said yesterday to my wife, I was like, "Is it ever going to stop raining in the UK?" And today I do have blue sky, which is actually quite nice. But it is the first time I have seen blue sky for quite a while. But. Um, Anyway, that concludes our episode of the podcast today. Like I said, I will put links to some of our other Tootcow podcasts and also both of those two trips, um, our summer and our winter, into the show notes. So if this episode has tickled your fancy and you've, you know, Tootcow has been added to your list, then um, you can go and check out those trips there. But so, Jake, thanks ever so much for coming on today and chatting with me. Um, I will be back next week with another episode of the Bucket Lister podcast. But until then, thanks ever so much for listening and I'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bucket Lister podcast. Be sure to click follow to be alerted for next week's episode. For more travel inspiration, check us out at www.thebucketlistcompany.co.uk or follow us on socials. See you next time.